Hi, I'm Peter Harper, the Managing Director and CEO of Asena Advisors, and this is the Three Pillars Podcast. The objective of the Three Pillars Podcast is to shine a light on the value of a family office and how it can perpetuate wealth creation, preservation, and education, and the value of being purpose-driven. Any advisor that works in the area of private client advisory or wealth management has seen firsthand the impact that poor governance practices can have on significant wealth. It can be mind-boggling to watch a very intelligent person refuse to acknowledge their own mortality and witness the carnage that can be left behind where an individual effectively transfers their issues uh, to their children uh, at death. So I'm joined today by a very good friend of mine, uh, Andrew uh, Ockenkloss. Andrew and I have known each other now for close to uh, seven years, worked extensively for various clients. Um, Andrew has practiced uh, you know, almost exclusively in the area of intergenerational uh, wealth transference and tax uh, for most of his uh, career. So, Andrew, uh, would you mind just st starting by giving folks a bit of information about yourself and and the area of uh, of law in which you practice? Uh, yes, Peter. Hi. Uh, so, I graduated from law school in 1989, and I joined big big law firm in New York City, White and Case, where I was for 18 years, uh, with a high emphasis on private client practice with a big international component. I decided in 2007 to go to an investment house, uh, Bernstein, uh, where I was for six years uh, in their wealth planning department and also in their international group. Uh, I decided to leave the industry in uh, 2004 and 13, and I went to uh, Sidley Austin, another big firm, uh, where I was for three years, and now I'm at a uh, boutique firm in New York City. There's 12 of us at Schlesinger, Lazatier, and Auchincloss, and all we do is private client work. Um, so, so you got experience on the topic, which is which is great. Yeah. So, you know, Andrew, I mentioned briefly before we kicked off that this, you know, the purpose of the series is to prepare first generation. Uh, uh, high net worth individuals that have had, you know, significant liquidity event that may not have thought through this idea of a family office or a governance around material wealth, right? How they have the rule book of, you know, how, how they're managing wealth within their own lives and then, and then for future generations. Um, and so, you know, the purpose of today is I wanted to, to leverage off the depth of your expertise, educate uh, the listeners on some you know, basic concepts and then maybe dive into in a bit more detail in, into different areas that you think might be relevant. So, um, right. you know, one of the first items that might be a new concept for, for folks when they're thinking through this is, you know, this, when they're thinking about the idea of governance is, uh, is the, this concept of a fiduciary and fiduciary responsibilities. Uh, can you, uh, sort of briefly touch on it as a concept and you know how we think about it as, as lawyers and you know why folks might want to want to understand what it is and what it means when it comes to uh, building out a family office or, or sort of wealth transfers plan 
plan? Sure, I, sure. So I, I mean, I guess fiduciary, there's, there's, there's a lot of flavors of fiduciary in the world these days. Uh, fiduciary duties arise in the context of many different relationships. But I think we can summarize them all by basically saying that a fiduciary is someone who is playing with somebody else's money. And so it is the law of playing with somebody else's money. The most basic example is the trustee of a family trust. The trustee, whether an individual corporation, doesn't actually, they, they, they own the property as a title matter, the trust property, but they, they're not the beneficial owners. And so there's a division between who the controller is and who the beneficiary is. And in that instance, there's a lot of law, fiduciary law, on what the trustee can and cannot do with that money. And the most basic example of a fiduciary duty is, is that the trustee has a duty of loyalty to the beneficiaries and cannot do things that are conflicted. So for example, a trustee cannot buy or sell assets on his own balance sheet to the trust. That is a conflict of interest and against the fiduciary duty. So uh, when these families start setting up all the structures we're probably going to talk about, there is a huge component of fiduciary law that's going to apply in these entities. Um, so that's why it's important for us. Yeah, and I think it, you know the reason why I wanted to sort of touch on it is that you know whenever I'm speaking to folks that you know, maybe have briefed, they might have in their own career, you know, if they're they've been in a senior executive role or, or whatever else. They may have been familiar with the idea of fiduciary responsibilities to shareholders that are governed by corporations, right. regulations, and all that type of stuff. But when you're talking about how to prepare for the transference of, of significant wealth to future generations, um, working out, well, okay, how, what is the law that's going to assist us as we're going down that pathway to ensure that if, if I want to give money away in a certain way um that the person that i'm handing it over to is not going to waste it right i mean there there are all those concerns that i think that folks have right when they're starting to think about these issues um uh, i think you know what sort of leading off that um the term family office is thrown around a lot these days uh it seems that any any family that has um, you know, a, a certain amount of money is sort of classifying themselves, um, you know, as such. Um, what it would be helpful, I think, for folks to understand is you know, putting aside the, you know, the SEC designation of what a family office is, is what are the sort of legal structures that you would ordinarily expect to see, um, uh, uh, you know, this notion of a family office operate from? Right. Well, so it's actually hard to generalize as to what's out there because families are very, very different about this. Uh, you're absolutely right. The first generation wealth, it's often hard to convince them that they need to prepare for what has become an extremely complicated world, right? I mean, you've got taxes, you've got all kinds of choices with structures, You've got some fundamental questions as to how wealthy you want your kids to be versus what are your philanthropic interests. Sorting through this all on yourself would be extremely difficult. And so the idea is to build a team of professionals and maybe some employees who can help navigate this. Um, the structure that that team takes is actually, in my experience, varies hugely. You see some families who 
literally get one employee. It's a very trusted person. And this one person basically runs all of the accountants and all the lawyers and the investment advisors. Uh, you see other families set up offices with a hundred people. I've dealt with one family that a hundred person family office that included art curators for their art collection. And so there's a big, big difference. Mm -hmm. uh, the key for people listening to this is you need to find the right structure for you and for your goals. Because uh, doing it on your own at this point is just too hard. Um, uh, and, and, the world has it's become too complicated. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And as I talk to folks about the when, that are focused on longevity, right, or thinking through this and saying, okay, well, when we think about our legacy, whether that's you know the maintenance of a multi generational business that we want you know to be still be around in a hundred years time, or it's just ensuring that the family can still benefit from the wealth or the capital we've got today for multiple generations. Um, you know, a lot of these different folks will touch on, you know, the importance of buy-in through multiple generations and maybe that engagement's happening through philanthropy or, or it's happening through education. What in your experience, I mean, is there any, anything that you think's more powerful, a more powerful tool than, if your objective is for something to sustain, to be self-sustaining and, and exist after, after a benefactor's passed away, what do you think in, your, in the experience of what you've witnessed is the most effective? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean so the, so the family that has a business that they want to pass on? Well, they've had the liquidity event and they've sustained it and now they're saying, okay, we, we want to put these rules around this to make sure that uh, one, the wealth is sustained, and two, that the family members are are interested in actually being engaged in whatever the family's up to. Right. Well, so I I, I would say that if the, there's the liquidity event and the wealth is going down to the next generation, G2, let's call it, and then also then G3, uh, depending on what the client wants, my feeling is pretty strong that you want the next generation to have separated wealth. You don't want everybody feeding on the same pot because that puts them in each other's hair in a way that is very, very destructive to their personal relationships in my experience. Now you still, I still have clients who say, I don't, I, I want everyone to be together. I want them meeting. I want them investing together. I want my family to stay together, in which case you work with that. But I think if it's liquid and it's divisible, the next generation and the third generation will be much happier if they're dealing amongst themselves with fundamental questions around investment and spending and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, the philanthropy piece might be the component where I try to make the whole family stick together. Sure. So you might say, okay, with a foundation right. or whatever it is, we'll have everyone engaged right. in the same strategy long-term, but, but there's going to be assets carved out. Yeah. Right. Now, where this is not possible is if you haven't had the liquidity event, where you still have the operating business that generated all the wealth is still in the family. And by the way, many families treat that business as one of the children, or even more important in some cases than the children. It is the thing, and, and the hope is, is that generation after generation of the family will work in that business and so forth. So now you can't really separate it out because you've got a single thing now you've got to be very, very careful about how this thing is going to be governed 
when the matriarch or patriarch is gone, who can call the shots. Mm -hmm. And here I try to encourage people to be realistic. Do yep. not kick the can down the road, make some decisions. Usually this means putting one child in more control than the others. That has a huge number of implications, some of which are good, some of which can be bad, depending on who the child is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really, really solid point. I feel like any time that it is pushed out and people don't want to make the decisions, all you're doing is taking the decision that you maybe didn't have the gumption to make yourself. You're pushing that onto people that may not, you know, have the right aptitude or the desire to make it without creating tension. Right. I, um, I think we can also say that you want your team, however it's constructed, you, you want the, the generations below you to be steadily educated on how all this complication works. You want them when they deal with the trust to have some sense of it. You want them when the investment advisors come in to have some sense of what they're talking about. You know, I don't know the, how much tax law you have to pick up, but it's very, very useful for the G2 and G3 to have some rudimentary knowledge on this stuff. So hopefully your team is, you know, you're bringing them into discussions earlier rather than later um, on some of these things. I know there is a million different ways that this can be crafted. You know, I, I, when I think about a liquidity event, it can be really dramatic, right? For certain people that have you know, never really spent a lot of money with advisors, when I say a lot of money, because it, 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 the risk profile for that individual can change very rapidly. Right. So they may think that they can manage the same challenges they had with one person. But in my experience, the depth of the challenges expand sort of rapidly. So, I mean, do you agree? That Back to the point that the world is complicated yep. and uh, it's, it's too difficult. You know, I, I, I believe you know, tycoons, the great captains of industry of the turn of the 19th century in the United States, now, that with a, a single lawyer, I mean, the tax law was nothing. Sure. With a single lawyer, they, they could organize their billions of dollars and, and have it all make sense. That's just not possible today. Um, with all of, the, all of the possible tax points and philanthropy. And, 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 and by the way, the complexity frequently drives the discussion. When people get really overwhelmed by the complexity, you find them trying to answer questions based on the, uh, on the complex situation. And I always encourage people to say, let's, let's have a timeout here. Assume there's no tax law, there's nothing. Can you tell me what you would do in a tax-free world? And often you get a very, very illuminating comment as to sort of what the real goal is. And it's just been distorted by all the complexity. Sure. But, but yes, you need advisors to help you navigate this. Yes, they, they seem expensive, but in comparison to the problems avoided i mean yeah obviously you and i are in this business so we think it's a very good investment <laughs> no no um, sure but right um, i mean i think that's the biggest thing right i mean the, the purpose of these these uh these podcasts is really to bring forward discussions that folks have never really had to think about right so as i you know as i think through this it's you know if i if i go from you know paper wealth to liquidity um you know that's 50 million or more and uh you know prior to that my you know, cash flow was pretty weak there's a whole bunch of different things i mean really a liquidity event is just an acceleration of cash flow so you're you're going okay well i've got this money now what 
right? As in, in you and I have to deal with international people all the time who, you know, beyond the domestic context, their lives are even more complicated because now they've got to figure out where are they going to be? Where are they going to be tax residents? Are they going to change mm -hmm. uh, for the liquidity event? Is there any opportunity to? What do the treaties say? Um, so yeah, so you and I are in a particularly complicated version of this 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 problem. Yep. It's um, great. I think I'd like. I mean, if you've had experience in it, that I think would be impactful around family governance structures and 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 folks that are outside of them you know that are marrying into the family yeah i was going to say i mean I, I, in my my ideal for a client is for them to have all of the benefit of wealth uh with as little title to that wealth as possible mm -hmm. because title to the wealth brings with it all kinds of creditor risk risk on divorce mm -hmm. uh, and other kinds of things where if you have the benefit of the wealth uh, without the title, then a lot of those other questions are minimized or go away. And my happiest client is a very wealthy man who actually owns nothing in his <laughs> own name. He has a, he has a, he's the beneficiary of very large trust. So for him, it's very important that he understand very clearly how the trusts work. Sure. And what that really means. And so the trust that this, this structure I see most often with wealthy American families are these very large trusts. Mm -hmm. um, they, have, they have some cons. There's some downsides to them in certain circumstances. But for the most part, it is a brilliant solution to a whole host of tax problems and governance problems. Mm -hmm. um, they're very frequently used, What? Right? Let's say there's money that's being sort of doled out around the family or there's, you know, they wish to assist, they wish to be some degree of assistance, let's say for, say, a family member next gen wants to buy a house or something like that. Is there, uh, is it often the case that rather than handing money out, there's, there's little money lent out? Oh, to yes. Various, yeah. Uh, we, we, we will always be careful. So as we, I, I call this, a lot of people call this asset location, mm -hmm. right? You have the balance sheet of a family and who owns what. The, the size of the balance sheet is one thing, but where things are in the balance sheet is a hugely important matter. Mm -hmm. And so you want to educate the younger kids that when they buy houses, there should be a discussion around how best to do this, what entity should own it. Mm -hmm. Are there, you know, just confidentiality and privacy are the reasons to have houses in an LLC uh, are the reasons for a family trust to try to own them. What are the downsides to that? Yes. Uh, but you can achieve a lot of goals for a family just by uh, being careful about where things are on the balance sheet. And do you find, you know, speaking of confidentiality, do you find that that has a major benefit because it stops folks from even starting a claim? Like let's say there was an opportunity for someone to, to start a claim and sue someone, right? Um, I, I, I think confidentiality is, is, is mostly from making it difficult for people to find things just by internet searches or database searches. Um, if someone is thinking about suing you and they really want to know where you live, I mean, they can find you and sure. they can watch you go in and out of the house. So uh, it doesn't really stop the dedicated lawsuit, but 
it can be very, very useful just to keep certain things out of um, the public eye. So if you focused around asset protection and confidentiality, is there any state in particular that, that your clients favor over others? The, the, this, well, yeah, the states that uh, most practitioners uh, in New York that I know, high-end practitioners, we're, we're, we're very fond of Delaware as a jurisdiction. Uh, the other states you hear about are New Hampshire, South Dakota, Nevada. Um, there's a few others that are trying to get into this. And these states are having a little bit of a competition as to who can have the most attractive laws for well-heeled clients to do their entities in. Um, they, they, the states sell themselves very hard on the fine differences between their laws. I find that those fine differences aren't so meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm mostly interested in how good the court system is in those yes. states, because if there's a blow up, I want it going to competent judges and competent court systems. So Delaware does very well on that. I can't really comment on the other states on that subject. Um, I know that California practitioners like Nevada very much, so I assume uh, there's a lot of good experience with Nevada. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Okay, that's great. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for joining today. Great, Peter. Great discussion. Always a pleasure. Always thanks. a pleasure. Bye. All right, take care. That was another episode of the Three Pillars podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. You can find more information about our firm at asceneradvisors.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for frequent updates and weekly blogs. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast whenever you're listening and check in every Wednesday for another episode. This has been the Three Pillars podcast.